guys, honestly, last night was epic. I was like riding pretty high after last night. I couldn't really sleep that well. I think God is working like crazy, and I hope that today is sort of that tipping point moment that honestly you take for an upward trajectory for the rest of your life. That's kind of my prayer with this message right here. But before we get there, how many of you guys saw my amazing family yesterday? Little Bubba, he's going to be a heartbreaker. He is the cutest kid ever. And then little Annabelle, she is so polite, just like her mama. Absolutely love it. But before I could have kids, I had to meet Kayla. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? <clears throat> right? That doesn't really work. And it doesn't matter. So before I ever even dated Kayla, we actually met at Grandview Park Baptist school okay go defenders weirdest name ever um never really even had a conversation because she was extremely godly and i was a drug-addict loser so i never really talked then when i was 21 i walked right into a bible study classic classic christian mingle right there walked into a bible study and saw her and i was like hubba hubba daniel and trubba can I get an amen? Yeah, there we go. So right away, I look at her, and I'm like, that's Kayla Nickel. Holy cow. Just as hot as she was in high school. This is amazing. And then I heard her open up her mouth, and I was like, she loves the crap out of Jesus. Could you get anything better right now? Okay, so I, got, I had this, like, stirring in my heart where I was like, I got to ask her out. Shooters got to shoot. Can I get an amen in the back? Come on, come on. Shooters got to shoot. So I was a real man and stepped up to the plate and backed down for three weeks. <laughs> there we go. Come on. So bold, so bold. I literally, like, I was, like, probably a little bit creepy in Bible study because I was, like, always kind of, like, looking at her, kind of waiting for her to, like, answer the questions in a godly way. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she's so amazing. But I, like, I had this thing in my head. Do you guys ever get that thing in your head where you're like, you really, really want something, and then all of a sudden you want it so bad, but you think like every single scenario has to play out perfectly for you to ever succeed? Yeah, I was, I was literally like, okay, I need to have like the perfect kind of witty introduction, kind of insert joke here so that we start this conversation. Classic me. Um, but then I also needed her to be like, sort of out of her mind so that she actually says yes to going on a date with me. Can I get an amen? Thank you, Logan. I knew I didn't even have to ask of you. Um, I literally was like psyching myself out for three whole weeks. I was like, and no. Nope, not going to ask her. Just going to leave. I'm an idiot. Okay, this stupid thing. I'm going to back up right here. <laughs> so I knew I wanted her. I knew action had to be taken, but I had no conviction to actually do anything about it. I was like, I really want that, but I'm going to cave really want that, but no thanks, right? I didn't really have this deep belief that I actually needed to ask her out or my life wouldn't be as good. But three-week period, I was like, eh, no conviction. My actions only took me as far as my convictions did. My actions only took me as far as my convictions did for those three weeks. How many times in our life have we seen a path ahead of us that is hard, right? It's kind of difficult, but clearly right for us to take, but we back down. How many times have we done that? 
How many times have you guys had that probably this past week? Maybe you had a friend, maybe this weekend, you had a friend who just needed to hear truth, and you knew what the truth was, and you're like, ah, shoot, and kind of back down. Or maybe even like last night, you knew you saw all of your connection group guys, all your connection group girls, like kind of starting to confess sin, and either you didn't confess sin, or you confessed like 50% of it, so it didn't look quite as ugly. I think we lack a conviction in our hearts. We lack a deeply rooted belief that if God asks us to do something, he actually expects action. He expects action. Even in the face of danger, even in the face of difficulty, he says there better be a conviction in your heart that leads to action. And we're going to see this again in Daniel chapter 6. Would Daniel act with conviction? Open up your Bibles because here at Salt Company we... That's what we do. If there's going to be one of the many things I'm sort of old manny about, it's bringing your Bibles. You will remember it better when you read it. That's just science. Am I right? That's just science. Okay. Um, so Daniel chapter six, yes, six. <laughs> Not te- chapter six. Uh, chapter six. Whoa, getting weird this morning. Okay, Daniel chapter six. All right. Would Daniel, (laughs) the question is, how do I recover from that? I'm just going to plow through. Would Daniel act with conviction? How many of you guys grew up reading the story, the famous story of Daniel in the lion's den? Come on, come on. This is it. Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. They have a new king. King Nebuchadnezzar died, thank God. Um, And now, sorry, that was rude. He's dead, all right? He's not here. He's not going to be offended. Um... And then Daniel is about 80 years old now. They estimate he's between 70 and 80 years old. He's an old man, and a new king is here. His name is Darius. First one, chapter 6, verse 1. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm. And over them, over all these people, three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. So pause right there. That's a huge deal. So King Darius is like, okay, I need more structure to this kingdom. I need to start, like, delegating to people that I trust. He appoints 120 satraps over all these people, and over them, three administrators. And Daniel's one of them, which means a foreigner in a foreign land is now in the top four of the entire kingdom, the most powerful kingdom in the world. That's a big deal. And they go a step further in verse 3. Daniel actually distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary, what's that word? Spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. Okay, stop right there. So not only is Daniel top four, he's starting to do so many great things because, is that my 10 of 2 alarm? It sure is, God. Please raise up more laborers, including all the, the people in this room. God, I pray that you would save souls and you would lead these students to feel like conviction and a belief that leads to action, which means they are actually laboring for your kingdom. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so essentially what that means is Daniel was crushing it at his job, and he had this extraordinary spirit. And what I believe it was was God was just giving him so much wisdom. We see this all throughout this entire book. God was giving him so much wisdom and discernment that the king was starting to take notice. And the king was saying, okay, Daniel is so good at his job, I want him to not be top four. I want him to be number two. 
only underneath me is king. That's how great of a job he was doing. So, essentially at this point, uh, things get a little bit hairy. People start to get jealous. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. Okay, do I need to move one of these mics or something? It's going to drive me freaking nuts. All right, verse 4. We'll plow through it. The administration of satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. These guys are jealous, right? Where am I at here? But they couldn't find any charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Verse 5. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of, this, of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, this is huge, guys, may King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man, except you, of course, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. All right, pause right there. What just happened? These people who are totally being outshined by Daniel are so unbelievably jealous of him. Why? Probably there was kind of a mixture here. Probably they were just like jealous of how much better he was at all of their jobs. There's probably a little bit of a mixture of racism there because he's a foreigner and he's like crushing all of them. Probably a mixture of it all. So all of a sudden they run up to the king and they're like, hey, you're so great, king. Would you like to go ahead and sign this law that says if anybody petitions another god, essentially what that means is to call out or ask of a request, a.k.a. to pray to any other god, they're going to get thrown to the lion's den. But who can they petition? Did you guys notice that? They can petition the king. What are these people trying to do to make Darius think? They're trying to make him think like, hey, hey, Darius, you're so great. Essentially, you are a god in our eyes. Nobody else in this whole realm could ever have any other request except to you. They're just kind of stoking his ego, right? Come on, sign it, sign it, sign it, because you're basically a god to us, right? And if anybody ever even just prays once, they're going to be thrown into the lion's den. The little, like, insert, you know, punishment here, just kind of like in the fine, you know, print there. What does Darius do? Look at verse 9. So King Darius signed the written edict. Boom, done. Written law. Who wouldn't want to feel like a god, right? <laughs> like, come on, just feel like a god, just for 30 days, no big deal. He's like, sounds good, sign me up. So let's check this out. All of a sudden, Daniel is hit with this crisis of faith. Because what we know about Daniel up to this point is he is a man of conviction. He believes in God. He believes that God actually wants him to take action based off of what he said. It's this crisis of faith. And this crisis is, hey, Daniel, are you going to die or truly live? Are you going to die or truly live? Many of us have had this crisis of faith. To die or to like kind of cave into culture was just kind of our secret God. Or to live for our Savior. The way I think about it is like, should I take the bait or should I patiently wait? Should I take the bait or should I patiently wait? So guys, when I was in sixth grade, I went to the Omaha Zoo. Oh yeah, greatest zoo of all time. Love the Omaha Zoo. So when I was in, I think I said sixth, yeah, sixth grade, 
I show up and I'm, you know, such a smart and squirrely sixth grader that we run up to the piranha cage, okay? Piranhas are dope, can I get an amen? And they're kind of crazy. The second they see food, they all like do this little like thing and then just attack it like wild banshees. So we're like fascinated by these piranhas. And so the zookeeper, as we're all surrounding the cage, the zookeeper walks up and he's like, oh, hey guys, I've got food for the piranhas. You're gonna be able to see something cool. And we're like, yay. So he opens up the cage and I don't know what he did, but he must have forgot something. So he leaves with the cage open and a bunch of idiot sixth graders right there. And a very insecure sixth grader Daniel who's trying to prove himself. So my friends go, <laughs> I know it gets worse. My, my friends go, oh, one of us should stick our hands in there. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, I'll do it. Come on, guys. It can't be that scary. So we kind of look around and see if the zookeeper's around. And I'm like, yes. So I just, I'm still a little bit scared. So I just dip like the tips of my finger in there. If you guys have ever watched piranhas, literally I dip my fingers in there. And the piranhas are kind of doing their thing. And all of a sudden about 30 piranhas goes. (laughs) (laughs) And just stare. So here's what they could have done. They could have easily taken the bait right? They could have easily taken the bait. But think about this. How long would just like four little fingertips really actually lasted them? Like an hour. I've got pretty, I got not really chubby fingers, but you know, hour and a half, right? They could have taken the bait or they could have done what was best for them and patiently waited because a zookeeper showed up about five seconds later and dumped a ton of food in there. <clears throat> By the way, I didn't lose my fingertips. If you guys are like, finish the story, you know, you'd see my fingertips, right? That did not happen, okay? I took it out because I kind of peed my pants a little bit. And then they just patiently waited. They did not attack me. And then the zookeeper just dumped a ton of food in there and they attacked it like wild banshees, okay? So what I'm trying to get to is they could have patiently waited, but... What was better for the piranha, to take the bait or just to patiently wait? To take the bait or to patiently wait? The crisis is, does Daniel take the bait of what this king is going to force him to do, or does he patiently wait for God to just show up? Which one's easier? Take the bait or patiently wait? Daniel, does Daniel have the conviction to wait for God to show up? Because here's the thing, Daniel has the secret conviction in his heart, but his secret conviction actually leads him to public disgrace. Look at verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, that's extremely important. It wasn't like Daniel was about to do this thing and he was very aloof. Look at verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, punishment was going to come. If anybody prayed to God, look what he does. He went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, petitioned to God, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Hey, didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days, any person who petitions any God or man except you, the king will be thrown into the lion's den? Just a quick, quick check for you. The king answered, as a law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands, and it is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, has ignored you, the king, and the edict you signed. 
for he prays three times a day. Verse 14. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. Then these men went together to the king and said, Hey, you know, your majesty, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order. Pause there. Daniel's secret conviction actually led him to public disgrace. Look at verse 10 again with me. Just look at verse 10. This is where it happens. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house, and immediately the windows in his upstairs room, they weren't closed, they were open toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to God just as he had done before. Daniel hears the new edict and actually carries on worshiping God like he always has. The immediacy of Daniel strikes me. The immediacy of Daniel just blows me away. So my mind, and guys, whenever you're reading the Bible, ask questions of the text. Like, why is that happening? What was he doing there? What was going through his head? You don't always find the answers, but it always leads you somewhere. So I read this, and I immediately think, like, hey, what is he praying about? What is so important for him to just like start praying essentially when it's a suicide mission? You guys notice how the windows are open and he's facing Jerusalem. He's not in Jerusalem. He's in exile. If you were to ask Daniel, I think he'd say, I was praying with expectation for a future deliverance that I didn't have right now. I was praying with expectation for a future deliverance. Here's the thing. It cost him actually sent him right to the lion's den. But guys, earlier we, we talked about a firmly held conviction that led to action in our life. And Daniel was faced with this crisis. Hey, to take the bait of not praying to God or to patiently wait or obediently pray anyways and wait for God to deliver him. Because here's the thing. Daniel knew he might face death by doing it, by praying, and is now on the doorstep of death because of it. But guys, he would only pray if he had a conviction to do so. So I've said conviction about 100 times. Let's define conviction. Conviction is a firmly held belief. Essentially what you hear and know, and it is in your gut and in your soul, that when you hear it, you will act upon it. That's a conviction, a firmly held belief. A belief that you know to be true no matter what the situation is. No matter how our world changes, no matter how your life changes, your conviction stays the same. Your conviction stays the same. Daniel has a firm conviction that despite the powers of the country he was in, his God would listen if he simply prayed. So here's the thing. Why did Daniel feel the need to pray as he did? Why or what would lead someone to essentially a suicide mission? What did he believe so deeply in his soul that he'd be willing to risk it all over something done in private? Here's the thing, our world is polarized by convictions. You guys realize that? Our world is polarized by convictions. People are watching and waiting for someone to actually believe something so deeply that they would actually just risk it all for it. How about our presidential debates, people? You guys watch that? Yikes. It was entertaining, but yikes. Right? People are polarized by these men's convictions, right? 
or lack thereof. What they believe, people are polarized, what they believe so deeply that they're actually willing to get in front of millions of people and just declare it, even if they look kind of immature in the process. Here's what I think your guys' frustration, some of your guys' frustrations are. There is actually a freedom in convictions with God because men and women, their convictions are so flighty and go in and out. And we actually expect them to be like God. And God's convictions are never changing. You guys notice this? This guy up and makes a law out of nowhere, and it only lasts 30 days. <laughs> like his convictions are only going to last 30 days. There is a freedom in having a firmly rooted belief in a God who is unchanging. Amen? Maybe that's some of your guys' unrest in your soul. You're placing your convictions in something that's temporary and not eternal. The point is, Daniel's secret convictions led him to public disgrace because many times our convictions have consequences. Look at verse 16. So the king gave the order to take Daniel to the lion's den, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed, locked and sealed. Verse 18, then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and he could not sleep. I'm going to take just like a side note. This has nothing really to do with my sermon. This is the most powerful man in the world and he sees a foreign Jewish man who is so unbelievably godly and the most powerful man in the world sends somebody in the lion's den and can't even sleep because he is so worried about losing this guy. Like, what does that say about who Daniel was before this moment? What does it say the impact that he was having on everybody around him, the convictions that he lived out before this moment? Look at verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? And there's this pause. Then Daniel spoke with the king. It didn't matter what Daniel said at this point. Those are just the sweetest, that's the sweetest sound that king could have heard in that moment. Daniel spoke to the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths, and they haven't harmed me. For I was found innocent before God, and also before you, your majesty. I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed. Wait for it. For he trusted in his God. For he trusted in his God. Verse 24, the king then gave a command, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den. They, their children, and their wives, they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to those uh, of every people, every nation and language who lived in the whole earth, may your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, People must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. Look at how he describes God. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. 
He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the, heaven, in the heavens and on earth. For he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. My main point is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Secret convictions lead to public power. Secret convictions lead to public power. And that power comes in two forms. The first one is in your scars. Secret conviction leads to public power. And that first power is actually found in your scars. Guys, Daniel's conviction to only worship God seems obvious, but it's not as obvious and likable when you're face-to-face, when you're eye-to-eye with a lion, right? Daniel saw scars ahead of him. He actually saw death ahead of him. And his first thought was, yeah, it's worth it. His first default was, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and go talk to God. His scars still led him to the lion's den, but his dependence pushed him to get those scars. Sometimes we pretend that when the lion's den is in our face, God somehow forgot to work. It just slipped his mind. When we put our convictions on the table and are immediately met with a trial, essentially you're asking, hey, where was God at here? I put my convictions out there and immediately something bad happened. It's exactly what happened to Daniel. Don't you think Daniel was kind of freaking out in his head while being escorted to the lion's den? What do you think? That's a scar. He was a little bit anxious, right? That's a scar. But guys, God calls us to have scars because of our convictions. God calls us to have scars. I think you can have two types of scars. The first type is a careless scar. A careless scar. I merely think of when I was in high school and we had a broken garage door that had these little mini windows on it. So I immediately tried to like, you had to like, you didn't, you couldn't push the button anymore. It was broken. You had to manually put it down. So I just kind of like threw it down and it was going down really, really hard. So I tried to brace it and my hand went right through the window. It was great. So if you look right here, there's a nice little scar here because I was being an idiot. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, had a, I have a scar on my wrist from accidentally doing that, just being careless. Here's the thing. You can get careless scars that really, really hurt, but they have no purpose. Careless scars, doing something that you're just that has no purpose to it. But the second type of scar is spiritual scars. Scars that are much deeper, scars that are much more painful, and at the time don't really seem worth it. Here's the catch unless you have a deeper conviction than the scars you're about to get. I've gotten spiritual scars from convictions. I've lost friends over my faith. And even like this past week, I've made enemies because of a deeply seated gospel conviction and call that I made. Immediately made enemies like that, the drop of a hat. You can get scars from carelessness and from conviction. And I'm actually kind of embarrassed by the scars that I've gotten from my carelessness. But here's a funny thing. I look at every single one of my scars that I've gotten from conviction and look at them with joy. Because when the lion's den was presented to me, I know that I did what was right in the eyes of God. When faced with scars, the difference is between what's worthless and what's worth it. Am I getting this scar for a good purpose that's rooted in convictions from God? Because I think we forget that Jesus had to get scars in order to fulfill his purpose, didn't he? 
In order for us to be forgiven, he had to have a conviction within him. Actually, Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, the joy before him and the conviction within him led him to endure the deepest scars any man would ever get. Amen? That's what Jesus did for us. Secret conviction leads to public power. Guys, there is power in our scars. So much power. And my second point is this. Secret conviction leads to public power. The second form of this power is in public prayer. Public prayer. Look at verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in his upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem and three times a day. Did he try to overrule the law three times a day? Did he try to stand up before the king and say, no, 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 don't do this. I want to worship God. No, no, no. Three times a day. Verse 10. He got down on his knees and prayed and gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. Guys, what is prayer? I got a, my own little definition for prayer. It's very simple. Intentionally speaking to God. Intentionally speaking to God. That's it. But here's the thing. Why is prayer powerful? What's the point? Why is prayer powerful? I think there's two reasons. Number one, it pushes us to a posture of dependence on God. You, you guys know why we get on our knees before God? Because we're getting low before our great king. And getting on your knees, actually raising your hands, right? When you're worshiping, this is a posture of dependence. This is a sign of submission to God. We're not doing this just because we feel like doing something with our hands when we worship, right? This is a posture of dependence on God. And prayer mixes all those things together. Prayer is powerful. The second way that prayer is powerful is that it actually calls upon the power of God. It calls upon the power of God. It calls upon the power of God to do something that I never could. God can do more in five seconds than I can do in my entire life. God can do more in five seconds, in one second, than you could ever do in your entire life's work. Do you believe that? If God can speak the world into existence, he can hear the words that you speak and turn them into something beyond your wildest imagination. Prayer is powerful. Daniel, here's the thing. Daniel only publicly prayed because he was passionately organized. Daniel only publicly prayed because he was passionately organized. You guys see that? He prayed three times a day, and he was the second most powerful man in the entire world. His busyness did not dictate his dependence. You are not busier than Daniel was. You are not busier than Daniel was. And you will probably never be busier than Daniel was. Mark Vance, pastor of Cornerstone Church, he said, it's easy to make activity for God, to mistake activity for God as intimacy with God. Let me say that again. It's easy to mistake activity for God as intimacy with God. In our busy world, we can go do every little thing, every little task in our life. But Daniel sees the crazy, busy, and risky path ahead and does all he knows and gets on his knees before God and prays just as he had done before. This was the pattern of his life. This was a pattern of his life before the trial. You guys see that? This was a pattern of his life before the trial. 
the pattern of his life actually led him to prayer in the face of the lion. He was already praying. He was already dependent on God's compassion and expectant on his power that the very second he was faced with a trial, prayer was his default. God was his default. Busy man, busy prayer. Daniel was too busy not to pray. Daniel was too busy not to pray. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. I heard Mark Vance say, based off of this, which means God has never answered a prayer that I wasn't willing to ask. On top of that, ask with conviction, with belief that he will answer. Daniel only publicly prayed because he was passionately organized. I'm going to come back to this point, but do you have your 1002 alarm set yet? I'm going to come back to that. Secret conviction leads to public power. There's so much power in public prayer. So much power. Because public prayer, here's the thing, opens our eyes to the character of God. It opens our eyes to the character of God. God is already working. And I think in our business of our life, we just miss it. But there's something about getting down on your knees. You start to recognize what God is already doing in the world. What God is already doing in your life. In our chaotic world, sometimes the loudest evil voices affect our weak vision. And sometimes in prayer, we refocus our eyes on what God is currently doing, and it leaves us in awe, does it not? Daniel could have looked at his situation and totally freaked out. Instead, he was consistently praying, and it led him to see God's deliverance before it became a reality. Did you guys notice that? Do we actually see in verse 10 him actually freaking out? No, I actually say we see him giving thanks. Look at verse 10. He says, the windows in his upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and freaked out. But he gave thanks to God, just as he had done before. He gave thanks to God. Why? Because he saw who God was. Look at 26, middle of verse 26. He believed that God is a living God. And he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. For he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Guys, Daniel knew that even if he died, his king will live forever. So who cares? Even if he died, his king would live forever. Our God stays rescuing his people. He's never stopped, and he never will. And through prayer, Daniel's eyes were open to the character of God. He was saying, I believe that this is who you are. This is who you've always been. I just need to come before you. I need to be reminded. Public prayer opens our eyes to the character of God. In your life, there is untapped, jaw-dropping, spirit-shaking power accessible to you through the power of God, all you have to do is pray. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Or is the busyness of your life just kind of makes prayer inconvenient? Prayer only happens in your secret life when you're convicted that God will actually answer. Because many of us pray as if we're sending a message to a mythical creature that's deaf and unwilling. <laughs> right? Many of us think that. 
we're actually praying to a God who listens, a God who is living, and a God who is able, do you live a life of secret conviction that leads to public prayer, uh, power through prayer? Guys, I pray the 1002 prayer. Let me explain it real quick. Luke 10, 2. Jesus literally says that the harvest is plentiful. That means there are so many unbelievers out there who are waiting to be raised up. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Few. That means people who are actually in God's kingdom aren't even willing to work for God. He's saying, therefore, with all the odds stacked against you, go do and try your hardest. No, 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 no. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up more laborers. You see all these 1002 shirts? That's what that means. 1002. All we're saying is pray. Guys, I pray the 1002 prayer because I have a conviction that God hears me and will answer me and is answering me. I see a desperate need in our culture for leaders to be raised up and I can't do it by myself. That's where your pride gets mixed into your prayer, right? Your prayer life. Your pride actually cuts out prayer. You say, I can do it. Actually, prayer says only God can do it. There are too many people who need Jesus. There are too many problems in this world that I can't handle. There's so much evil that I can't correct. But I have a conviction that I serve a God who will make right what is wrong in this world. Therefore, I pray. I have a conviction that I serve a God who told me to pray and is hearing every word. And here's a cool thing. The answer to that prayer is right in front of me. It's you. It's you. I've prayed for you guys for years, and I didn't even know it. I had no idea. You guys standing in this room are literal answers to prayer. And all through the weeks coming up to this, I have been praying on my knees, God, save souls. And God did it. I've been praying, God, melt hearts, and God did it. I've been praying, God, let these students break down the walls of their sin and let you in and actually affect their lives, and he did it last night, amen? That's what he did. I am so convicted by a desperate need in this world for God, but I am as deeply convicted that I can't do anything about it apart from God. And that brings me to my knees praying. Is that your secret conviction? Secret conviction leads to public power. And this power comes in two forms. Your scars and your prayer. Your scars and your prayer. For you, do you have a conviction that when a trial comes, when persecution comes, you would gladly take the scars for Jesus because he took worse scars for you? When you where in your life do you need to step up a scar do you have a conviction that God hears your prayers that he answers your prayers and that he is able to do far more than you could possibly want and need do you have a conviction that God is God and is far more powerful than you could possibly understand is that a deeply seated conviction in your soul then you would pray for many of you guys something simple is just setting your 1002 alarm that's being passionately organized. Do you think I would pray at 10.02 every day if I didn't have an alarm set? I would have completely forgot this morning. <laughs> would have completely forgot. 
it's that passionate organization which just goes beep, beep, done. That's how passionate it is. But then all of a sudden, you call upon the power of God every single day to do something crazy like he's doing at Salt Ankeny. Some of you guys need to cut out five minutes every morning to call upon the power of God because you realize that God can do more in five minutes than, he could, than you could do in your entire life. Maybe for you, this weekend has surfaced a lack of conviction in your heart because you don't actually have Jesus in your heart. You've been lacking, or you've been taking careless scars because you never knew all it took was to believe in the one who took all the spiritual scars for you on the cross. You've been kind of like going back and forth all weekend. Do I actually take the dive and belief in Jesus? I'm telling you right now, stop running. Have conviction. Place your faith in Jesus and watch him fill your life with the Holy Spirit power and joy that you never thought possible. And I kind of want to just cast vision real quick. What would it look like if Salt Ankeny was known as a ministry of conviction? What would our campus look like if prayerful people got on their knees and begged God to do something that they knew they couldn't? What would God do if he saw people depending on him like this, like Daniel? God, I thank you so much for Salt Company. Thank you so much for this retreat. God, you have showed up and you have showed off over and over and over again like you always do. God, I pray that this is a send-off for them. I pray that they are sitting back thinking, okay, I haven't been disciplined in this. I know I should pray, but it's more of guilt-driven. I, God, I pray that it's more power-driven. I pray that it's more driven by the fact that they know that they serve a God who can do crazy things. They've seen him do crazy things in their own life. God, I pray that they would realize that it starts with the heart and then it leads to the mouth. It starts with a conviction for you to do something, a belief that you can do something far beyond their wildest imagination. God, I pray that for many of these people, if it's their first time praying, that you would do something wild, that you would actually answer their prayer quickly so that they could see, oh my goodness, God, you do exist. God, I thank you that you are a God who can. You are a God who will. And I pray that everybody here would have that type of faith when they're praying. God, you can and you will. And here's the thing. I pray that they would have the humility to say that even if you don't, God, you are still so good. You are still so powerful. And your kingdom and your reign will last forever.